Good morning. Good morning. Well, you've, if you've been with us for the last two months or so, you know we've been going through a series on discipleship. How's that been? Getting a lot out of it, I hope? I know I have. It's a great series, and I think it's just very convenient that you can summarize a lot of the lessons we've been learning in discipleship um, just using our, our motto, our Blue Water motto, which is? Try. try. That's right. Try. You'll see some people with t-shirts that say try. That's our Blue Water model. And um, I think you just all, all you have to do is uh, use variations of the word try, and you'll get the summary of a lot of these lessons, like just try. Okay? Just take a risk. Take a leap of faith. Right? And then there's don't even try. That's avoiding temptation and things that drag you down from becoming a better disciple. Or what about try wait? That's a lesson on patience. It's important. It's God's timing, not ours. Or try again. Okay? Perseverance, because discipleship doesn't happen all at once. You need to take it step by step. And then there's today's topic, and that's try hard. Uh, today is about excellence. It's not enough to just dabble in your faith. We should go all in, you know. Uh, we should try to be excellent in, in the way we exercise our faith. Now, when I say we should all aim for excellence, um, it sounds a little cliche, doesn't it? Sounds kind of like an inspirational quote, a hashtag maybe. And I think we can generally agree that the idea of excellence is a good thing. You know, I think we could probably agree on a general level. But if I make it personal and I say, you should be excellent, then what would your reaction be? And I think I'd get mixed reactions. Um, some of you would agree with what I'm saying that, yeah, I, I should be uh, excellent in everything I do because you're achievers or overachievers, and you've just trained yourself to, to be like that. You know, everything you do, you give 110%. But that's not everybody. Um, I don't think everybody thinks of excellence in a positive way. Uh, I, I think for some, striving for excellence means that you were forced uh, to, through a very tough program of discipline and pain, and that wasn't very pleasant. Um, for others, excellence just means more work, and I don't need that. I mean, I can just skate by with life. Why, why do I need more work to get this bit of excellence. And then there are still others who look at excellence and think, I, I can't do it. You know, it's intimidating to be excellent. Uh, I've always been the C student. I've always been the, the middle of the pack or the last kid who was picked on the playground. So excellence might be a great thing for others, but it's not for me. Okay. What is the biblical view of excellence? I think when you boil it all down, what you'll find is that God intended us to be excellent. Uh, he made us to be excellent. And therefore, excellence is the right thing to do. Okay? Excellence is the right thing to do. If we're to be excellent as God desires us to be, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. If we're supposed to be excellent, then we need to have the right motivation we need to have the right measure of excellence, and we need to have the right methods of attaining excellence. The right motivation, the right measure, 
and the right methods of attaining excellence. And you might be wondering, where does it say that in Scripture? It's all in John 15, that beloved passage that we've been going through. Um, if you went to the retreat a couple of months ago, Jordan did a great teaching on this chapter. Uh, uh, and it's about the true vine and how we as branches need to be connected to the true vine. It's all in there. So let's start with motivation. Having the right motivation is really important. In athletics, you need good footwork to do a lot of things. If you want to throw the ball well, okay, if you want to land a punch solidly in boxing, you need to have your feet planted firmly, or at least in the right position, because the rest of your body aligns. You know, it, it, your feet align the position of your body, and you need that strength flowing from the feet up to the rest of your body. And, and I think very similarly, when we do ministry, our heart needs to be in the right place, because if it's not, then everything else falls out of place. Okay? So your motivation really counts. So what motivates people to aim for excellence? Well, four years ago, Yale law professor Amy Chua wrote a book called Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. Anyone read this? Yeah, some of you? All right. Um, the book was basically a tongue-in-cheek look at how Chinese parents, and not just Chinese parents, but Asian parents in general, uh, turn out these stereotypical math whizzes and musical geniuses. Right? How do these parents do it? And Chua explained that by basically writing a memoir of her own life and, and how she was raised in a very strict Asian uh, uh, family, and, and also how she did that with her own daughters. Now, here are some of the things that Chua never let her daughters do, according to this book. They could never get any grade less than A. They could never be less than the number one student in any class except uh, gym or drama. <laughs> they could never attend a sleepover. They could never have a play date. They could never watch TV. They could never play computer games. They could never play any instrument other than the piano or the violin. And they could never not play the violin or piano. Here's a particularly uh, brutal passage in this book. Uh, Toise explaining how she was forcing her daughter to learn this particularly difficult piano piece. And she wrote, I, I hauled Lulu, that's her daughter, Lulu's dollhouse to the car and told her I donated to the Salvation Army piece by piece if she did have the little white donkey perfect by the next day. When Lulu said, I thought you were going to the Salvation Army, why are you still here? I threatened her with no lunch, no dinner, no Christmas or Hanukkah presents, no birthday parties for two, three, or four years. While she kept playing it wrong, I told her she was purposely working herself into our frenzy because she secretly was afraid she couldn't do it. I told her to stop being lazy, cowardly, self-indulgent, and pathetic. Chua worked through dinner without letting her, dinner or her daughter get up, not for water, not even for bathroom breaks. And the story ends with Chua's daughter beaming after she finally got that piece down and couldn't stop playing it over and over. Wow. I'm glad to say that I didn't grow in a up in a, in a tiger mom family. It was quite the opposite, actually. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, but if you're like Chua, you know, what are the reasons for people like, like Chua, what, for, the, for being a tiger mom? 
Why, why do people do that? I think there are many different reasons. Not, there's not one reason, but there are, there are various possibilities. One could be that, you know, I want to give my kids a good foundation to succeed in the world. I'm, pre I'm prepping them for life so that they can go high. Another could be, I want to boost my reputation amongst my peers. You know, I, I'd like to be able to sit at a family dinner and say, well, guess where my, go my, my daughter is going for college? Um, guess what award my daughter won? You know, so that may be another motivation. Another one to, could be to, to live out your dreams through your kids. Okay, I didn't, maybe, maybe I didn't live out, I didn't succeed in this particular area, but my kids get another shot, so I'm going to live through them. Okay? Ring a bell for some? Painfully, perhaps? Um, but, you know, it's not just tiger moms who have these kinds of motivations. And let me ask you, why is excellence important to you? Why does it matter to you? I think for some of us, we want to be successful in the world. Um, we might want to gain a lot of wealth, amass a fortune, or at least something that makes us comfortable and gives us security. Uh, or it may not be monetary wealth, it may be reputation and renown. We want others to look up to us and say, yeah, that's, that's someone, that person, they made it. Excellence might also um, be a goal for us because it makes us feel good. I mean, frankly, when we do something well, our self-esteem gets a boost, doesn't it? Like, I did that. That was, yeah, that was me. That was me. Right? And these are not necessarily bad motivations. Um, I think sometimes they, they, they do push us towards uh, excellence and, and help us, you know, aim to do the very, very best, and they turn out very good results. And, and so they're not intrinsically bad, but they're ultimately self-focused. Okay? They're all about ourselves, inward. And it's about ourselves trying to build ourselves up, but the motivation for excellence in the kingdom of God is different. Because it's not self-focused, it's God-focused. Okay? Where does it say that? Let's take a look at John 15. Let's go back to John 15. Okay? What, is, what are we supposed to be producing? Fruit, right? Fruit. And how do we produce that? John 15 says you produce fruit by abiding in God. You abide in God. You have intimacy with God. That's what it means to abide. You remain in His love. You, you be connected to God. And when we're connected to God, we draw life from Him. When we abide in God, what happens is that we become more like God. And our hearts and our desires align with His heart and His desires. What He likes, we like. What He dislikes, what He grieves over, we dislike and we grieve over. We become more like our Father. And that's great because God is excellent. God is great. He's the most excellent being you'll ever meet. He's excellent in all he does and all he is. And if we are connected to God, then we become excellent as well. It's like when we're connected with God, his excellence flows into us. We're transformed into the excellence of God. That's the motivation for excellence in the kingdom. Not trying to better ourselves, but a desire to be intimate with God. 
abiding in an excellent God makes us excellent. But that leads us to ask, what does excellence look like to God? Okay? And we, in this world, it's pretty easy uh, to, to identify the markers of excellence. Um, we can look at how many awards a person has won, you know, how many trophies they get, although nowadays every kid gets a trophy just for showing up, so maybe that doesn't really apply. But in the old days, you had to earn your trophy, right? An award counts, a certificate you know, a, a medal of excellence, awards. And, um, and, and even in the professional world, like how did you get the corner office? Uh, what's your pay scale? What's your pay range? Um, these are little tokens of excellence that we collect. Um, material wealth is another uh, identifier of excellence in this world. How much money you earn or the stuff you accumulate, how big your house is, uh, what car to car you drive, um, you know, on and on and on. These are little little markers of success. Or, or what about stats? Success, a success record, you know? If, uh, in sports, how many games have, has your team won? Uh, if, how many, if you're a website designer, you know, how many, how many people have visited your website? How many hits have you gotten on your, on your website? Um, if you're in sales, how many products have you sold? You know, and you can think, you can apply that kind of reasoning to anything you do. You know, there are these little markers of success that say, this person is excellent. And it's very tempting, I think, to apply these kinds of metrics uh, of excellence to ministry. You know, if a church, at a church, um, we can try to measure excellence by things like how big a crowd we attract as a church, or um, how many people we save each year, how many baptisms we have, um, how healthy are our collections, how much tithes we, we collect. Right? Uh, how many people listen to our messages? What's our influence, range of influence? Or what's our reputation for being cool? You know, are we known as the hipster church? Uh, some churches pride themselves in being like that. Or how exciting are our churches, our church services? You know, do people get all riled up in our church, uh, Sunday church services? Um, or maybe how often do we get mentioned in the news because of the cool stuff we do? Right? You know, I mean, to some degree or another, I think all churches benchmark themselves this way. And again, none of these are bad in themselves, but, but they're not the true markers we're supposed to be aiming for. Um, and how can we tell that? Very simply, just take a look at Jesus. Earlier this month, Pope Francis stirred a little bit of controversy in his message uh, at St. Pa Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Pope Francis, ever the controversy stirrer, uh, said that if, if you look at Jesus' life, humanly speaking, uh, it ended in failure, the failure of the cross. That's what he said. And many, many Catholics kind of recoiled in, in horror, saying, what do you mean that Jesus was a failure? But I think Pope Francis is right. Because you look at the time of Jesus' death, and what's the state of his ministry? His followers deserted him. He's been wrongly accused and convicted of a crime he didn't do. He was hated by the crowds. Um, he didn't build up a big following. He didn't become king. He didn't restore political independence to Israel. By the standards of this world, Jesus at the cross was an utter failure. 
And yet we know that in God's eyes, he wasn't a failure. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the world's standard of, ex of excellence is not the same as the standard of excellence in the kingdom of heaven. John 15, going back to that passage, tells us what God considers excellent. And in fact, John 15 gives us kind of an equation for excellence. We just said that the origin of excellence is abide in me. That's where it starts, right? That's the motivation. Abiding in God means remaining in God's love. And remaining in his love means what? Obeying his commandments. What's his commandment? Love each other. Love. Okay. What that tells us is that the true measure of excellence in the kingdom of God is to love well, both God and others. Excellence of God is not measured by works. Okay? The works are a product of loving well. They're not the ultimate goal. And Paul makes this point in his first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, um, there's the, the whole letter is a warning to the church. Now, now, Corinth, the city of Corinth and the church of Corinth uh, was very cosmopolitan. It was a very diverse church. And you have to understand that the city of Corinth was a very important city. It was located on a four-mile-wide isthmus that connected the northern provinces of Greece with the southern provinces. So if you had to go from one place to the other, you had to travel through Corinth. And that made Corinth a hub of industrial and trade activity. It was very wealthy. It attracted people that were very talented. Um, people who were looking for success would go to Corinth. It was very much like a New York. And so you had a crowd of people in Corinth that were very worldly and very talented. Uh, these were like the professionals on Wall Street or the artists and performers who you would find in Broadway. Okay, very, very talented people. And when they converted to Christianity, they brought to the table those talents and, and, and also their worldliness. Okay, so this was a very talented and yet a very troubled church. And you could tell because you could look at what Paul said to the Corinthians. Paul said, don't be selfish, don't be arrogant, don't be uncaring, don't be fleshly, which meant that they were selfish and fleshly and arrogant and uncaring. Okay, they, they discriminated against the, Paul, the poor in, their, in the Lord's Supper. Okay, very talented but very flawed. But they also happened to be very spiritually gifted. And, um, and apparently the Corinthian church prided itself in spiritual uh, works, in, in supernatural ministry. And we know this because Paul spent three chapters talking about supernatural ministry and spiritual gifts. Okay. So Paul says, look, I know the importance of spiritual gifts. I, I understand how important supernatural ministry is. And there are all kinds of gifts. And, you know, each gift plays a part in the body of Christ. But at the end of this discussion in chapter 12, what does Paul say? I will show you still a more excellent way. And then he goes into chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the famous love chapter that you hear over and over again in, um, in uh, weddings. Love is patient, love is kind. Come on, say it with me. <laughs> you, if you've been to weddings, you've heard it a millionth times. And Paul says, 
Look, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Not something. I have nothing. If I give away all I have, if I'm incredibly generous, if I deliver up my body to be burned, look at my com commitment to God, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Pretty harsh words. And then Paul goes into what love is, right? That, that love is patient, love is kind passage. And Paul's point is that all the giftedness and all the good works in the world amounts to nothing if we don't have love. It's like noisy symbols or those gongs. And what is he talking about when he says that? Well, what he's referring to is pagan worship. Because in pagan worship ceremonies, uh, people would strike a gong or use symbols to wake up the deities or clear out evil spirits. Okay? If, if any of you who are familiar with Asian cultures know how that you know, how that is. You, we use these drums or whatever, right, to clear out these evil spirits and to wake up their gods. So Paul's point, Paul is saying, look, if, if you don't have love and you're doing all these great things, it's like as good as pagan worship. No, God looks at it with that kind of value. It's, it, it, even if it ends up helping people, you know, even if we're doing, doing things in God's name, it's about as good to God as pagan worship. So loving well, is the gold standard of excellence. Now, if that's true, if excellence is measured by loving well, how do I love well? Right? How do I love well? What is the ultimate form of love? What does John 15 say is the ultimate form of love? In verse 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, but what? that someone laid down his life for his friends. Loving well involves sacrifice. You want to love well? Here's a tip. Don't always insist on your rights. We're a culture that's obsessed with rights. We measure justice in terms of protecting our rights. We say, I deserve this thing I deserve to be treated this way, and doggone it, it's unjust if I'm not treated that way that I deserve. You see it all over in the news. You see justice cast in terms of, I deserve to be treated this way. That person deserves to be treated this way. I want my rights. I'm an American. Right? Very, very, very familiar, I think. But becoming excellent in the kingdom means letting go of this entitlement mentality. Again, Jesus, he didn't insist on his rights. In Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, Jesus, uh, Paul says, Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Imagine that, equality with God. He's entitled to it, but he didn't, he didn't uh, take it up. He didn't say, I'm entitled to that. Instead, what did, God, what did Jesus do? He said, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient in death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus is God, right? And as God, he has all the right in the world to demand absolute, absolute obedience from us uh, and to strike us down if we didn't obey. That's his right as God. Instead, what did he do? He came to us as, the, as a servant, the ultimate servant, in fact. And, and, you know, this kind of humility would not have been possible if Jesus had insisted on his rights as God. Do you want to love well? Then be like Jesus. We're excellent in the kingdom when we love like Jesus loves. And let me give you a couple of examples of how this actually works in real life. Um, a rights-based mentality prevents us from caring for the poor and the needy. You know, the reasoning goes something like this. I earned this money. I worked hard for it. I made sacrifices. Uh, I have a right to enjoy this thing that I earned. What do the poor do to, to deserve any of it? It's mine. Why should they deserve anything? They probably made bad life choices. And so why should I have to suffer because of their mistakes in life? I'm going to hold on to this. It's mine. I earned it. Uh, or, or take this thought process. I worked hard to buy this house. I worked long, hard days. I gave up a lot of stuff. And I should be able to enjoy my house. So why do they have to build that homeless shelter next to my house? Why don't they, you know, why my neighborhood? I mean, I know that they have to build it somewhere, but why my neighborhood? Why don't they just put it with the other low-income neighborhoods? That kind of thinking leads to nothing getting done to help the poor, doesn't it? Is it right? Is it wrong? Well, I mean, you did earn your money. You did earn the money to buy the house. That's not incorrect. But is it excellent? Okay. Uh, another example. An entitlement mentality prevents us from exercising the discipline we need to grow closer to God and, uh, and drawing closer to him and, and getting intimacy with God. And here's one I personally struggle with. Okay? Here's, here's the thought process. I worked a long, hard day. And I, I know I should be going to bed early so that I can wake up early in the morning because that's when I do my devotionals. Um, but, you know, I, I deserve to watch just a little TV just for a little while um, because it's been a long, hard day and, and I deserve to unwind. Uh, and I know that there's a risk that I'm going to go to bed late and wake up late and miss my time with prayer, but I deserve it. Okay. It happens to me a lot. <laughs> okay. But what does is, what is Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, or 24? He says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. You know, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. See that sacrifice again? Yeah, you have a right to do it, but should you? Is it excellent to do that? Will you love well if you make that decision that, that helps you or gives you an advantage or pleases you instead of pleasing others? Okay. Another example. I deserve not to forgive this person who has wronged me. They were in the wrong. I, I'm on the wrong. I did everything right. They were the ones that messed it up. 
Why should I forgive them? Why would they deserve my forgiveness? Why? They have to come and grovel to me before I will forgive them. That's the right thing. That, that's the way things should happen. I deserve justice. Jesus says, no. Forgive your brother. Love one another. You want to love me? You want to abide in me? Love one another. And that's incredibly hard to do. I understand that. I understand how difficult it is to forgive people. I understand how difficult it is to say, you know, not my will but yours alone or to make that decision that's just painful to me. But the way we're able to do that, the way we're able to be excellent is to abide in God's love because we draw love from Him. We know we are loved. That gives us the engine to love. That's the sustainable source of love. If you try to do it yourself, by the way, if you try to just love on your own power, you will either become very bitter and judgmental because you're saying, look, I'm the one who worked hard to love others, and why don't they love me back? It gets old very easy. Or you become very judgmental and elitist. It's like, I can do it. I can love like this. Why don't you love like that? I'm better than you. That's not the way excellence works in the kingdom. We draw from God and His love. We abide in His love, remain in His love, and that helps us to break through this entitlement mentality to love others, and we're all loved. That's the excellence that the Lord calls us to do. And I think pursuing excellence requires us to be intentional about choosing what is loving to God and people instead of what we think is right or just. And I love that at Blue Water, we have a culture that's summed up by that word, try. It's, It's such a nice summary because the first steps towards anything, excellence included, is faith to try. Give it a try. But don't get stuck at try. Don't be content to just try. Try hard. Okay. Let's be excellent because God is excellent. Let's move away from insisting on our rights and our justice and learn to love well. I just want to pray. Will you pray with me? If, if you feel, if any of you are, are feeling like, I'd, I'd like to be excellent, how many of you want to, want to be excellent? How many of you want to pursue excellence in the kingdom? Okay, good. Yeah, a lot of you. But you feel like there's a barrier to you reaching that excellence, whether it's self-interest or people telling you you're not good enough, whatever it is, I want to pray with you. And will you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you that you are excellent. You are the source of all excellence. And we know that we can't be excellent in our own power, so we come to you. Father God, I bless brothers and sisters here who want to be excellent like you are. And I say in the name of Jesus, any barriers to your excellence, be broken. Be free to pursue excellence in Jesus' name. Any word that's been spoken over you of discouragement, You are a lie. You have no place here. Be gone in the name of Jesus. Any selfishness that's in you, that clings on to you, by the word of the Lord, by John 15, the words of the Lord in John 15, I break that off. 
we break it off and we give it over to you. Take our selfishness away from us. And if any of you are struggling with this rights mentality, I say, Holy Spirit, transform our minds. Renew us by the transforming of our minds. And we receive what you have for us, the excellent uh, mission that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.